Welcome to the Coaching DNA Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Wyckoff. I'm also the founder of Kingdom Coaching, my consulting business. This week's episode is a repost of my conversation with Ann Walker. Ann is the head golf coach at Stanford University. During part one of my conversation with Ann, we talk about advice that she received from Tara Vandeveer, commonalities of great leaders, her upbringing of hard work, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, the importance of adaptability, and much, much more. As I re-listened to this episode with Anne, I was reminded of how good she is. She has been the National Coach of the Year two times in her career. And this past spring, Anne led her Stanford team to the national championship, which was the second time she has led her team to a national championship. So without further ado, my conversation with Anne Walker. Anne, thanks for joining us. Uh, why don't you walk us through your journey from high school to present day? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. This is great to be here and, and do this with you. I've been really excited about all week, and it's been nice just to reflect on what we were going to talk about today and somewhat try to relive those days by myself, actually. But um, high school till this moment, boy, there's been a lot happened in between there. I grew up in Scotland on a farm. Um, came from a farming community. Both my parents were farmers and uh, not really any golfers in the family to speak of, but around the age of 12 or 13, my dad would play once a week. And, you know, when you're a 13 year old girl and you're stuck in a farm with no neighbors and no friends anywhere close by, you start to kind of itch to get some socialization. And so my parents' option was, they said, you know, you could join the golf club and, and that could be a way to spend the summer and make some friends. And that's what I did around the age of uh, 12, 13. We joined the golf, got a junior membership, and I spent the summers playing golf and washing dishes in the in the clubhouse there to make some extra money on the side. And that went on till the age of probably 16, 17, when my game really flourished, really fortunate to flourish too. And my parents, I asked them to take me to the Scottish National Championship, the junior championship. And uh, it was a long drive for us. It was in Aberdeen, which was about three hours, which is unthinkable when you're Scottish to drive three hours somewhere with European gas prices. But they did it. They loaded me up and we went and um, it turned out I was actually pretty decent. And I was fortunate enough to make the national team. And from there, there was a progression of some cool stuff happened. But that led to a moment where the head coach at the University of California, Berkeley, Coach McDaniel, she had an up and rising program that had been formed, I think it was 94, 95, with their first team being 95, 96. So this was somewhat um, coinciding with me hitting that 16, 17, 18-year-old window. And she had gone through this process where she was observing, she wanted to have a really elite team and competitive team, and she was observing what that would take. And there had been an inflow of Europeans at the time in the college golf. And so she decided that would be maybe the route she would take. And by good fortune for me, she reached out to a friend who had been involved with the Curtis Cup here in San Francisco, who reached a friend in Scotland who had said, hey, you know, any players over there? And she said, yeah, there was a handful. Um, and so I was at a junior tournament and got a hold of Nancy McDaniel's number I was all set to go to University of Edinburgh, but I thought, well, what the heck, you know, I'd give this a call and, and see what could come of it. Okay, so this was August or it was, yeah, July 1997. And I called this American number. And at that point, I'd been to the States with my parents. I'd been to Orlando. We'd gone to Disney World twice, but Florida was the extent of my travels to the USA 
I knew there was a time difference based on I'd been to Florida. So that was a five hour time difference. I didn't know that in America, then there's an additional three. So I start calling her what I believe to be 8 a.m. her time. Turns out it's 5 a.m. She doesn't pick up. I do that for maybe two days. I leave a message, you know, hello, this is Ann Walker. I'm calling from Scotland. I'm looking to get that golf scholarship if it's available. I totally unknown what I'm doing. Then I just said, well, geez, she's not answering. I'm going to try even earlier. And so as it turned out, finally, her husband picks up and he's like, hello. I'm like, oh, yes, this is Ann Walker. I'm looking for Nancy McDaniel. And come to find out they actually had a newborn at the time, too. So that's that's kind of the story of all stories right there. But she ended up flying over, watching me play a junior tournament. I shot my career low, no joke. And uh, it was 69 at the time. And we got done. And she said to me after the tournament, she said, do you always play like this? And I said, of course I do. And she <laughs> she was like, right on. Do you want to go to Berkeley? And we can get you started in January. And and uh, that was kind of how it went. It all went down in about 24 hours. I left that morning to play a junior tournament. I came home that night and I said to my parents, oh, I'm going to go to America and I'm going to play golf. And uh, my mom said, what? <laughs> so anyway, we were able to get with Coach McDaniel and I ended up landing in Berkeley in January, uh, January 11th. 1998 in the middle of El Nino. It was the worst spring rains that California has had. I, I think it might still be in the last 30 years or so. Part of the Olympic club fell in the ocean because it got so wet. Cars were sliding off the road, ocean beach, the water came up into San Francisco. And I'm like, where have I gone? <laughs> I, mean, I came to California with shorts and t-shirt and I arrived pouring rain in Berkeley um, but then more than that, I'd only been in Orlando. And so arriving in Berkeley was a real shock. And that was mm. definitely a change of pace from the strip malls of Orlando to arrive in um, the epicenter of protests and liberal movement there. So that was fun. And then I played four years there. We had a great run. I was really fortunate upon coming up on graduation. Uh, but a week or so before, I thought I'd turn professional. And our assistant coach at the time, Jay, announced he was going to move on. And so Coach McDaniel, you know, just very graciously and very kindly brought it to my attention that she would love to have me join the staff if, if that was something I was interested in. And so, yeah, I, I graduated on the Saturday, finished playing nationals, and I was fully employed by the Monday as the assistant coach for uh, University of California, Berkeley. So I have a lot to thank Nancy for, obviously, and, and that said, I was, on a, I was there till 2008, so a six-year run, 2002 to 2008. And in that six-year run, we were just really fortunate to be hitting the stride of the program. It had been about 10 years at that point. The program had been in existence, got some great players, and we had uh, three, maybe four, but three straight years of winning and or finishing in the top five at NC2As, won a Pac-12 championship. Uh, we had an individual NC2A champion. So just a lot of really great momentum for the program, which was to my good fortune too, you know, timing's everything. And put me in a position where when the UC Davis job came open, which is just about an hour uh, northeast of Cal, I was I was a good candidate for that job. And it was great for me because I'd already left Scotland once and left a lot of family and friends. So being able to go to Davis close to Berkeley, where I'd spent 10 years, you know, making a new family and new friends, is able to go up there and uh, spend four years there. And again, just really good fortune with awesome kids, great momentum, a uh, good group of women. And we did some really fun things there. One, you know, I think three or four straight big West championships, got to nationals, finished 11th at nationals, 
just did really exciting stuff. And we'd just come out of division two into division one, actually at Davis at the time. And then the Stanford job opened in 2012. And again, that momentum made me a candidate for this position. I knew the Bay area. Well, at that time, I was well connected in this area, both recruiting and just in the athletic business at that point. Um, and so had some nice ties and in July 2012, I was I was able to be offered the job at this position and, and grabbed it at the time. And then here we are a quick eight years later. Um, we've had a good run and just excited to hopefully get back up and run maybe sometime here in the next six to eight weeks again. But COVID willing, we'll see what COVID decides. But yeah, that's kind of the journey. And that's what leads me to this moment here where I get this opportunity with you today, Travis. Cool. Thanks for walking us through that. Uh, side note, did Bowlesby hire you? Uh, he did not. So funny, there was this interim gap where Bob Bowlesby left and Bernard Muir wasn't hired yet. And so Patrick Dunkley was the acting AD Okay. and Patrick hired me, but Bernard and I were hired within seven days of each other. So, gotcha. cool. and I was also uh, Greg Meehan, who's our swim director, swim coach here. We were also hired within seven days and he's gone on just to be phenomenal. I mean, three national championships. He's the Olympic coach this year. He's a complete superstar. So back to where you started this conversation a little while ago offline, do I ever feel intimidated? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Well, so. we'll dive into that here in a sec. I want to hear about Nancy McDaniel. What made her such a good coach? Yeah. So she's still a very close friend. Um, and we stay in regular touch. She's been really influential in my life and I'm glad to have the opportunity to speak about her. I think what made Nancy a really good coach. So when I came to play for Nancy, uh, she was competitive. She was energetic. She loved the game. She had a young family. Um, she did it all. She was the epitome of, you know, when you say, well, you're a female, but you can still have it all. She was that woman. And she brought so much passion and energy to the team that it was really infectious for us as young women too, to have that same energy and excitement and passion for both golf and life too. And I look at Nancy and that team, you know, she has several women who've gone on to coach. I coach here at Stanford, but the Cal Poly coach um, co played for Nancy. The Virginia coach played for Nancy. The UC Davis coach played for Nancy. Mm. Uh, the USF coach used to play for Nancy. So she's had several players from that era go on and be coaches. And I think about that. Why was that? And I think it was just because it was really, really fun. And she created an energy where we couldn't wait to get to practice because we just had a blast and we formed these really close friendships with one another. Um, but then when I went on to coach with Nancy and I got to see more behind the scenes of what was going on, first of all, her life was chaotic. She busted her butt to make it all work. And, and now I'm living that with, with my own kids and my own job. And um, I'm, I'm going through what she was going through in those days. Uh, but I think what made Nancy really good was her competitive fire and her energy and then her constant, you know, I would always give her the worst time. She'd have these big ideas every day. She would come to the office and she's like, so here's what I'm thinking. And then I'd be like, well, is that really realistic? I was the more practical one between the two of us. And that combination made us a pretty good combo. Mm -hmm. But I think that constant love of learning and that constant desire of, okay, what's under the next rock? Okay. I looked under that rock. What's under the next rock? And sometimes the rock that she turns over has, you know, great stuff under and other times it's dead worms, but she's still going to keep turning rocks over. And I still see that in her to this day, you know, she's signing up for classes. She's always watching stuff or reading books or, you know, noodling on what can make her team better. So 
that part of Nancy was really infectious. And a lot of the things I learned from her and her, um, her methodology about making players better, I've taken and brought in my own program. Yeah, cool. Okay, let's, let's, we'll, we'll, let's dive into the Stanford coaches, but because obviously being on campus at Stanford, you're surrounded by, just on that campus, surrounded by just tons of great leaders, great coaches. What, what are some of the common attributes? We know that leaders are come in all different shapes and sizes, different personalities. We, we, we know that. But what are some common attributes that you have seen in uh, the great leaders you've been around? That's a good question. Um, It's a big question. Well, when I think of my peers at Stanford, my colleagues here, my my fellow head coaches, uh, they're really thoughtful and they are, they're intelligent. Intelligent about their sport, of course. I mean, they're great X's and O's people, of course. But more than that, they're intelligent about people. And they know people, they understand people, um, they're perceptive, they're driven. Do not get in front of a Stanford coach, my goodness. <laughs> you tell a Stanford coach no, and they're going to say, did I hear yes? No, I said no. Did I hear yes? <laughs> uh, and they'll find a way. Um, but, you know, I think of our head coach meetings and the passion in those rooms I mean, you leave every time just feeling, I leave every time feeling like I'm inadequate. I'm not doing enough. I need to do more. I need to think of ways to get better. I need to think of ways to, you know, to turn the screw, to just make it a little bit better, a little bit faster, a little bit stronger, whatever it might be. Um, And that's, it's a really inspiring thing, but it's also an incredibly overwhelming thing. I would guess I'm not alone in that feeling, you know, but it's not something I sit around whispering at head coach meetings. Like, do you feel overwhelmed by how great these people are? <laughs> um, but that I think it's infectious too, which constantly drives the, drives the ship forward. So, yeah. So we're going to talk later about just the mental skills with golfers, but for you personally, as a coach, you're around Stanford, you've got, you've, you've, you've got those thoughts of like, Holy cow. Like, when am I going to be found out? How do you, yeah, what have you done just to make sure you don't get sucked too deep into that? Like, I think we've all had those thoughts, but there's a difference between having those thoughts that come and go and kind of, you know, kind of, kind of get rid of them and having those thoughts stick and actually affect how we perform and how we coach. How do you prevent those thoughts from sticking and actually losing confidence as a coach? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And so I'll back up to 2012, you know, I was coming from UC Davis and full disclosure, Stanford was my dream job. Of course it was. I'd always been in my mind that, gosh, if there was anywhere I could coach, this would be the place for several reasons. One, I just really believe in academics and I believe in the idea of student athlete. Um, and then I, I love the game of golf and I'm competitive. And, and this combination really was something I dreamed of. So when it, the job opened, I went through the hiring process. There were several interviews and I finally got to the on-campus interview and I received my itinerary for the day. It had lunch with John Tanner, who has won a, a bunch of water polo championships, and Tara Vanderveer, who when you're a female coach, Tara Vanderveer is at the top of the pyramid. She's the untouchable. And and I couldn't believe it. I, my husband at the time, or still, still my husband, um, 
I said, oh my gosh, I'm going to have lunch with Tara Vanderveer. Worse than that, she's going to interview me. It was so overwhelming. Mm. Uh, and But then, you know, we had that lunch and it, it went great and we get to this point. But I think it, then I got hired actually. And let me tell you a little bit more about that. I had lunch with, I reached out to Tara. Now I was her colleague per se, although I will never be her colleague. She's like the winningest of the winning right there, the GOAT. Yeah. But I reached out to her and she is so approachable. What a cool lady and what a cool friend she's been to me and mentor and um, of all things great at Stanford. What a blessing for me to have her in my life now. And I consider her a, a good friend too. So I'm really fortunate. But anyway, at that time I reached out to her and I said, hey, can we get lunch? You know, I want to learn from you. I want to hear how you've been able to make this all work here at Stanford. And ideally I can follow in your footsteps and leave a, a great program. And she said, sure, no problem. Let's meet for lunch. So we met for lunch. And I said, gosh, you know, you've, you've done all these things. And like, can you tell me about how you've sustained success? And she looked at me and she said, well, that's the goal, right? Sustained success. I'm like, okay, that's really simple. So I'm writing it down. I'm like, that's the goal, sustained success. <laughs> and then I said, so um, what do you think the key to the job is, you know, sustaining that success? What do you think that is? And she said, it's recruiting. She said, if you can't recruit, you can't win. And if you can't win, you can't coach. I'm like, okay, recruiting. <laughs> and so it was like so simple, but it was also unbelievably terrifying to me as a new coach because all I heard, and she didn't mean it this way. She was just trying to make it simple for me. But uh, all I heard, because I had just come to Stanford and was already overwhelmed by the success of the whole athletic department and the brand itself. I mean, let's face it, the whole brand is considered excellence. All I heard was win or be fired, win or be fired. <laughs> right. And, and I think about that now, eight years in, that's absolutely not the message she was giving me. She was genuinely imparting, which was great knowledge. Like, Focus a lot on recruiting. If you recruit great players, great players become great students, great students, uh, great scholar athletes come together, win championships. That's how the program succeeds. But I heard win or be fired. So how do you put that aside and try to stay day to day? I remember very vividly coming home from that lunch and I said to my husband, I don't know if I can make it here, but what I'm going to do, we had a very frank conversation. I said, I'm going to go all in. I'd gotten a a three-year contract at the time. I said, I'm going to go all in and I'm going to give the best I have every day. And at the end of the three years, if this doesn't work out, I'll be able to walk away saying I gave the best I had. And if, if that's not good enough, that's okay. I can live with that. I mean, life is not, you know, all about if I'm at Stanford or not, but life is about, I know I woke up every day and I gave what I had to whatever that that situation um, just needed in the moment. And I said, we'll go from there. And I feel like since that day, that's all I've really tried to do is do yeah. right by my players, do right by my family, do right by Stanford university and our athletic department and continue down that road. And, and yes, you know, you said Travis, yeah, there's times you get distracted off of that where you think, gosh, am I doing enough? Could I be doing more? Um, and it takes a really good support team around you. People who really grind you, which I, I feel like I have, who can bring you back to like, hey, are you being a good person? Are you treating other people the right way? Are you treating your players the right way? Are you making decisions truly based on what's right for the kids in your program? And if you are, over the long haul, it'll work out. Yeah, that's that's uh, Tara-esque advice. Just do the best you can do and 
Yeah. Just sustain success. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's the thing. What is success? I heard that day winner be fired. Right. That's not what she was saying. Mm-hmm. She was saying, be your best every day good. and your best will be good enough to make your team their best and making their team their best will make your program the best. Yeah. That's really good. I even think the, the piece that you added, like, and if that doesn't work out, I'm, I'll, I'll be fine. Like I'll yeah. be fine. Like we'll be all right. We'll figure something else out. I think that added piece, be your best. And just be okay with with what happens generally when you do that. It seems to me, athletically or or as a coach, you operate at a high level because you, you don't have the extra stress. And it generally does work out when you're not so gripping that it has to work out. You let it go. You go, you know, compete and or coach at a high level, and it usually does work out. Yeah, and and you said it right there. You know, I think in college, probably anything, college athletics is all I have experience with. But probably anything, you get so far down the rabbit hole yep. that it's really becomes hard to have that perspective that if it doesn't work out, it'll be okay. You know, and I tell kids that all the time. All these kids will say, "How do I get to Stanford?" You know, not just recruits, but my friends' children. How do I get to Stanford? And I say, "Well, you do your best, but if you don't get to Stanford or you don't get to Harvard." It's funny how in life you'll look back and be like, gosh, that was the right thing for me at that time. Yes. That's such a good word. That's good. Um, okay. Let's talk about uh, kind of back to you're 12 or 13 years old. You, if I understand you correctly, you're like, just get me off the farm so I can go, go do something. What was the draw then? to to golf what drew you to the sport after you kind of played it a few times uh well I played a little soccer and I'd done a little running and I really wasn't good at any of those things so (laughs) kind of like every kid that ends up in golf um but no it was mostly because the golf course was close to my dad's work and so that was dad could take me in the morning he could drop me and he could pick me up at the end of the day it was convenient and you know I think back to what did I get out of that time period that helped shape me over the over the years and coming from a farming background um both my parents are incredibly hard workers uh, my mom started her own business and has had it now for 40 plus years and it's a very robust business she's a florist she's been uh florist of the year in scotland a couple of different times and she started that from nothing and my dad he's worked his way all the way up to the top of his company too and um hard work was a non-negotiable in our house and given your best was an absolute non-negotiable. And so when I think back, you know, the golf thing, it was, it was great. I love being outdoors that too, but I also think back to, it was also convenient for my parents in the sense that, you know, they really, they prioritize, we have to do our work too. My dad, you know, he was going to go to work. He had to give his best. And therefore this fits in that window and and we're going to allow you to do that. But with that, I also had to work at the golf course because my parents also, you know, you have to have a job, you have to earn money. And, and it wasn't a, if, because you need to pay your way thing or anything, it was more about, this is how life works. And so it's not all play. It's not all fun. You do well in school, you get to play golf. You also have to have a side job. So you're learning how to work. And so I washed the dishes and that was not a glamorous job, but it served me well because I've washed dishes the rest of my life. And I think I will continue to, Um, but I, I, that was kind of what came out of that, you know, being raised by my parents on the farm there is just, you have to work hard and you have to give your best. And if you do that, you know, then we're okay with you. The rest is gravy. Yeah. Love that. 
So you, you go to Cal, and I'd like to dive in. Had uh, team captain, you're in the Cal Hall of Fame. What were you like? What were your strengths as a player? As an actual golfer, yes. As a player. Yep. Uh, probably my work ethic. Actually, yeah. that was probably my strength. Which, um, yeah. Well, my short game was pretty good, but that's also because I worked my butt off on it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would say that that's pretty much it. Like, and and then, you know, I don't need a lot to drive me beyond my own self. And I still find that today. I, I don't really need a lot of external tournaments on the line or trying to beat someone or yeah, uh, that stuff doesn't really matter that much to me. There's enough inside my own self that I'm always constantly like, what's my own next challenge? What's my own next challenge? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that probably was one of my strengths and that still is. Yeah. It's interesting. You bring something up that I've, I've just, I've put a lot of thought to over the last, I don't know, probably years since I heard uh, a, a guy, I don't even remember where I heard it, but talk about the difference between competitiveness and drive. Competitiveness is I'm going to beat you. Drive is I'm going to be my very best. And it's interesting, the combination of those, you know, I don't know if you watched the last dance documentary with Michael Jordan and he feels to me like he had both of those at a really, really high level competitive. He wanted to beat that guy. But there was also an insane amount of drive. I've also been around people that are really competitive, but not driven. Like they might show up for games, but they probably don't ever play at the highest level because they're just not driven. And guys that are driven that aren't maybe kind of to what you're saying, like the the, I've got to beat that person is not what gets your motor going. It's the I just want to be really, really good. I don't know. It's just an interesting and I don't even know if I've made sense of how that all plays together, if, especially for leadership and, and coaching. I find that the more driven you are versus competitive, the more successful you're going to be. But I know some coaches that are super, comp- I don't know, I'm kind of rambling. No, I but- think you're right. I, 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 I would almost say the shelf life is different, though. And, and I don't know this to be true, but those that are driven internally usually have a longer shelf life. That's good. And those who want to beat someone, you're going to have success maybe somewhere in there. The time frame of that success is probably going to be on a smaller scale. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. Who knows? I have have no uh, research to back that up. That's just. Totally. No, all mine's anecdotal too. I'm just thinking of all the good leaders (laughs) And some have been really competitive. And to your point, there, there, it feels like a little bit of a shorter fuse. It feels like a little bit of a, a sprint where they, but when the drive's not there, they, you know, the, yeah. the external motives to beat people, maybe wax and wane. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and golf's a great sport to look at that. I mean, I think in team sports that can get, uh, you know, you reference Michael Jordan and team sports. And I don't have much experience with team sports, but I know in golf, it can be a real hindrance to try to beat someone else. Yeah. Just because you have no control whatsoever. Yep. Your only real competitor in golf is the golf course. Mm-hmm. And I can go out and be on my very best and shoot a 65. And it just happens that day that Travis got hot and shot a 64. But, I, you know, that's where in golf, if you aim to beat someone and that is your end game, it just doesn't work out normally. Totally. So yeah. You better be playing for internal reasons versus external. Yeah, that's good. Um, okay, so 
let's talk about your strengths. You mentioned some, I thought your, your um, comments on common attributes were really, really good. The emotional intelligence, the thoughtfulness, they were driven. What are you, what are your strengths? Um, well, you'd have to probably ask my players because probably my idea of my strengths are very different to maybe what my former players would say. Yeah. But if I was to take a stab at it, I think close to the top would be a clear communicator, straight talker. Um, you always know where you stand because if it's going to cross my brain, it's coming out my mouth. And that can be a hindrance too. You know, yeah. I, I also have to really manage that because what I've found over the years is within my program, that becomes the expectation and they understand me. And we talk about that a lot, but just going around my daily life and living in society, people are not used to straight talk and they're not used to people sharing a thought that is not intended to in any way be controversial, just what's going through my brain at the time. Sure. Um, so that, but I would say from my team perspective, th that would be close to the top as a, as an attribute that's allowed us to be successful. Um, I work hard to treat everyone the same and really give everyone respect, knowing that no two people have had the same opportunities in life and walked the same path. And it's impossible for me to ever know how many footsteps Travis has taken or where those footsteps led or where they went and why they went and therefore try to approach every player, every person that comes through a program, every person that comes through my life, actually, I should say that it's not just sport. Mm -hmm. um, try to treat them with the same respect and, and attention. Um, I think as far as I actually listened to a podcast the other day, you know, you mentioned it was a Navy SEAL who's just finished up a book about attributes uh, Rich Roll podcast. And he was talking about, funny enough, he was talking about those that love to train for the sake of training and those that train to compete mm. and differentiating, differentiating that and, and how that pops up in the SEALs. But uh, he was talking about adaptability uh, as a core attribute and how one of the things I loved that he said, it was great. He was saying in 2020, you know, when you sign up to be a SEAL, you know, you're going to go through hell week, you know, you're going to go through buds. You sign up for that. They have a 90% attrition rate because they have the bell that can get you out at any point over those six weeks. You ring the bell, you're out. And he said, what 2020, what makes it so difficult and so hard is the whole world was thrown into hell week in theory or hell year, but no one signed up for it. It was something that was put upon us. In addition to that, there's no bell to get out. So in SEALs, you can ring the bell. And the common person for the most part would they sign up to be go through six weeks of SEAL training? Most likely not. Right. So therefore, the, the core attributes within each of us don't necessarily line up with this year that we've gone through. And therefore, it creates this crisis hmm. of um, character. And he was saying the number one attribute that everyone has developed in, and I agree with this, is adapt adaptability. Whether you liked it or not, you were stretched ever so slightly in adaptability. And then there were those of us who had adaptability within us for whatever reason as a core attribute. And I've been reflecting on that a lot. And I, you know, 2020 has been challenging. It's been difficult. But when I look around, I perceive that it's been less challenging for me. And I think some of that is because I have adaptability inside. And I think most coaches most likely do have adaptability inside because at the end of the day, we're in the people business. Yep. And I always tell people, people always say, oh, it's, you know, what's it like being a coach? What's it like being a coach? And in many ways I say, it's like being a, a fireman. 
you wake up and you don't know how many fires or how big the fires, and you don't even know where the fires are going to come from, but you know, they're coming. And so, and so you're always kind of pivoting and changing. And one minute you're doing, you know, team travel, the next minute you're, you're on the phone trying to put out a fire and next minute you're doing budget. Then, you know, you're at practice, then you're being a, a swing coach. So you're just constantly pivoting and having to be that way. Um, and then, you know, having two young children, I think you become adaptable too, but I was thinking about that. And I think that's probably a core attribute that served me really, really well in coaching is yeah. being adaptable. It's so good. Really good. Really good. Thanks for listening to part one. If you would do me a favor and give a five-star rating and review, I would appreciate it and be on the lookout next week for part two.